I know we're a little early on Christmas, but uh, this is our Christmas service. I'm going to ask you guys if uh, we would please open to Luke chapter 2. If you need a Bible, just slip up your hand, we'll get you a Bible. But Luke chapter 2, we'll eventually get there. It is the traditional Christmas story. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the difference between tradition and the truth. Now, what we do each December 25th revolves more around tradition than it does around the truth. I don't know if you're aware of that or not. And this morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at the ancient traditions surrounding Christmas, and then we're going to look at the truth. What really happened that night that Jesus was born? So let's dig in. The simple truth is that long before there was a Christmas celebration, there were midwinter festivals that occurred around the 25th of December, which, by the way, just happens to fall each year right around the winter solstice. Now, we know from our modern calendars and from every news app, weather app that you have on your phone and, and the news, that we know when winter's coming. We know when we can expect the long, cold days of winter. But what if you lived at a time when there really wasn't a way to tell? It could mean starvation and death if the winter months caught you unaware, right? The ancients figured out a way to be able to tell by recording the movements of the heavens and erecting structures like stone monoliths that acted as sort of a solar calendar for them. By searching the heavens, they were able to discover when the midsummer solstice, and of special interest to them, when the winter solstice would occur. That word solstice is derived from two Latin words meaning sol, sun, and sistri, meaning to stand still. And what it means literally is that the sun stands still. So on or around December 20th to the 23rd, and that date varies because it's subject to orbital variations, the sun appears to the naked eye to stand still in the sky because the sun rises and sets in the exact same place. But then around the 25th of December, the sun's position changes. And it begins a new cycle towards days with longer light. Now, for the ancients, that would have been a time of rejoicing because they knew that that change in the cycle of the sun meant that they were moving toward a time when life was more sustainable, when it wasn't so dark and harsh and depressing. So they look forward to the summer warmth. They look forward to the planting of the crops. They look forward to the abundance of nature. We still look forward to that today, don't we? Especially after this last snowstorm that we had. We're looking forward to the warmth of summer, to the dog days of summer. And then when we get to summer, we're all wishing for the fall and the winter to come back. So it should come as no surprise to us that ancient cultures celebrated a winter solstice, and they celebrated the joy of looking forward to another planting season. The issue we have with this, of course, is that they gave the credit to this changing in the cycle of the sun to their gods. One of those gods is called Saul Evictus. Now, the ancient Romans were one of those cultures that celebrated a winter solstice with a festival, the Saul Evictus, which that name means unconquered sun. Now, Christians, some Christians believe that by celebrating Christmas on December 25th, it's just another way of celebrating the Syrian god Saul Evictus. Just know that most Christians that I know don't celebrate or see Christmas as a celebration of the winter solstice. They see it as a celebration of the birth of Christ. But the question remains, could we inadvertently be celebrating the birth of the God of the Son by celebrating Christmas? So let's look a little bit at that. The celebration of Sol Invictus in Roman history appears to have been introduced by the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius around 2018 to 222 A.D., after the assassination of Marcus Aurelius, there's no mention of that feast until the rule of the Roman Emperor Aurelian, who reigned from 270 to 275. He tried to reintroduce the worship of Saul Invictus by a decree in the year 274. Bear with me, I know I'm throwing a lot of dates at you, but it'll all make sense in the end. There's no record of that festival being held on December 25th, however. According to the early imperial records, it was held somewhere 
on August 8th or August 28th or December 11th. Nobody's quite sure when they held it. So it appears that that feast moved around. And some believe that Christians established December 25th as the birth of Jesus to suppress that pagan feast. But the opposite may be true. The celebration of Saul Invictus as the god of Rome came as pagans attempted to suppress the Christian feast of December 25th, celebrating Christ's birthday. In other words, Christmas wasn't moved to suppress the pagan holiday. The pagan holiday was moved in an attempt to, to suppress the Christmas holiday. And the way we know this is because the first mention of Jesus' birthday being celebrated on December 25th is by an early church father, Hippolytus of Rome, and, and he recorded it between, well, he lived between 170 and 236 B.C., and he recorded that Jesus' birthday was celebrated on the 25th. They were celebrating the birth of Jesus long before they were celebrating this feast of Sol Invictus. Another ancient tradition celebrated around the 25th of December is Saturnalia, and that might be something you're a little bit more familiar with. That was dedicated to the Roman god of agriculture, Saturn. That was established around 220 BC, and it was at first originally celebrated one day a year and one day only on December 17th. Eventually, the feast, because they liked it so much and had such a great time, they extended it out an entire week, ending on December 23rd. And at some point, they extended it out even further, because what do you do when you're having such a great time? You just add more days to the feast, right? And it eventually ended up ending on December 25th. So again, Christians did not move Christmas to coincide with Saturnalia. It appears the Romans moved Saturnalia, which then coincided with Christmas. Now it is true that some of the practices that we, some of the things that we celebrate on Christmas were some of the practices that they used in this feast. It spilled over into Christmas, like giving gifts, holiday sweets, the seasonal generosity of the people one to another was all established during this, and there was also the drunkenness part of it, which we, of course, as Christians don't celebrate, but it is a part of some Christmas parties throughout the year. The difference is the ancients before Christ celebrated the winter solstice as a promise of spring, and they gave credit to their God for the promise of that spring. And Christians, after the birth of Jesus, celebrated our Savior and the promise of new life in him as given to us by our God. You see, it's not how you celebrate this holiday. It's about who you celebrate. Now let's look at the Christmas tree real quick, because that's another point of contention for a lot of Christians. Decorating trees goes well, way back before the Christian era. It goes back to cultures in China and Scandinavia, believe it or not. They were using fresh branches in their homes as a way of symbolizing life and safety during the dark days of winter. In the 1500s, there's a popular tale that Martin Luther brought in the first Christmas tree. And the story, although pretty, it's a beautiful story, we don't know that it's true, but the story goes like this. We're walking one day out in the frosty woods on Christmas Eve, he came across the tree with icicles hanging from it. And he was so awestruck by the shimmering starlit night shining on this tree that he brought it home for his family. Like I said, I don't know that we believe this because once you bring in a Christmas tree with icicles hanging off of it to a house with a wood-burning fireplace, it's not going to last long. But he's also credited with having the putting lights on the first Christmas tree by putting candles on the branches to replace the shining icicles. Now, as I said, whether this is true or not, we don't know. It's kind of a nice story to tell around this time of year. But we do know that modern Christmas trees can be traced back to Germany. As early as the 1400s, German trade guilds decorated guild trees, and the children danced around them and ate, ate the sweets that were off of the tree. But the Christmas tree that you have in your home today, some of you have in your home today, didn't become part of Christmas until an illustrated London news piece showed the royal family at the time celebrating around their Christmas tree. That was 1846. That caused such a stir that by 1920, Christmas trees had become part of the traditional Christmas decoration in many countries. The Christmas tree conveyed a message that were pulled out of the darkness of winter and into the light of summer. 
And you see, that could be an issue for some Christians. Celebrating with a Christmas tree may stand out as an idol. And we're going to look at that as we go on a little further. But the tree in the home of a Christian, if you have one in your home, should represent the light of Jesus Christ. The star on the top of that tree should represent for us the star that he was born under. A green tree in the dead of the dark days of winter should represent for us new life in Jesus Christ. The gifts that we place under that tree should represent for us the greatest gift ever given to this world, Christ Jesus. You know, I remember growing up, my mother, who was not a Christian at the time, always made it Christmas about the birth of Jesus. Always. It was never about the tree. It was never about the toys. The most prominent thing under our tree was a nativity set. I was the one who got to keep little baby Jesus in my sock drawer. Sorry, Jesus. But it was, oh, and I, got to, I put him out on Christmas Eve because, of course, he was born Christmas Eve, right? So you couldn't put baby Jesus in the nativity till Christmas Eve. But it was always in my house about Jesus, always. My mother always made sure it was about Jesus. Now, some would argue the fact that Jeremiah chapter 10 speaks to us against having a Christmas tree in our home. And I'm going to read that verse to you. For the custom of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of his hands of the workmen with an axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 3 through 4. Now, if you read this passage of Scripture in its context, which we are supposed to read all Scripture in, our con in its context, we discover that God's warning the people against having this tree as an idol. Now, if you are bowing down and worshiping your tree in your home, then you have another problem altogether. But unless you're doing that, you're not guilty of idol worship. Now, you have to, make, you have to understand, you have to make your Christmas tree an, idol, an object of worship in order for it to be idol worship. Do you understand that? God instructed the Israelites to put images of cherubim on the veil to the Holy of Holies, didn't he? He instructed them to make golden cherubs to cover the mercy seat. Even though they were images of heaven, they weren't considered idols because no one was bowing down and worshiping those idols. They were worshiping the God who lived in the Holy of Holies, who his presence was made known in the Holy of Holies. That's who they were worshiping. And so if you're not worshiping your tree but worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, and the tree is just a decoration in your home, you're not guilty of idol worship. Now, there's so many Christmas traditions that we could look at this morning, but time prohibits us from doing that because I really want to get to the meat of this message and look at when Christmas really happened, when Jesus was really born, and no, it was not on December 25th. But if you want to dig deeper into this subject on your own, I strongly suggest a book called Christmas, a short story a short history, rather, from Solstice to Santa, written by a gentleman named Andy Thomas. But we want to look, as I said, at the day that Jesus was truly born. And because, well, before, rather, we look at that, let's look at the fact, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do Christians celebrate Christmas on December 25th? Why that date? I want you to understand something right from the very beginning because none of this rest of the balance of this message is going to make sense to you unless you understand that Jesus is not a Westerner. Jesus does not look like Jeffrey Hunter with steel blue eyes. You understand that, right? Jesus is Jewish. And people did not celebrate their birthdays in Israel. The apostles, nowhere in scripture do you read that the apostles went to get a Carvel ice cream cake for Jesus to celebrate his birthday. They did not celebrate birthdays. The first mention of Jesus' birthday being on December 25th, the first mention of it on a calendar was found in the chronography of 354. And that calendar is also known as the calendar of, of Philocallus, who was a Roman scribe. Just know that there were much earlier references to the birth of Jesus on December 25th, but the fact that it was listed on this Roman calendar meant that by this time, it was a full-fledged holiday that was celebrated. I'm sure there were a group of pagans who were celebrating their gods on December 25th, as they probably still do. 
But that date, just know, in your hearts, was not chosen to trick you into worshiping a false god. Rather, it was chosen as an alternative to worshiping Jesus. They chose that date, I should add, as an alternative to us worshiping Jesus. And I want to share, you, share with you rather something awesome that God did to put an end to all this confusion. The prophet Malachi wrote of a prophecy long before Philocalus, long before Hippolytus mentioned Christmas being on the 25th of December, long before any of that, he wrote, as he was led by God to write, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, S-U-N, God chose to use instead of S-O-N, shall arise with healing in his wings, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, or if you're Italian, it's Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. This is a prophecy of the birth of Jesus Christ, and I want you to listen how one commentator so beautifully interprets this verse, the son of righteousness, S-U-N, came as a light of the world 2,000 years ago. He came as a light to illuminate the hearts of men. He came as a light of life to a host and to a lost and dying world. He came as a light to lighten the Gentiles and he manifested the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ our Savior. He is the fountain of life for all who put their trust in him. He is our righteous Savior, our Lord, our righteousness. So December 25th may have been used by some pagans to celebrate the birth of their God, the Son, S-U-N. But what God, what Satan meant for evil, God used for good. And you'll find that in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. God allowed that date to be used as a celebration in the birth of his Son, S-O-N, or Son, S-U-N, of righteousness. Amen? You see what God did? God took what Satan was using for evil and turned it for good. He allows us to celebrate and use this day for what we use it for. And by the way, this is a day, Christmas shouldn't be celebrated once a year. We shouldn't be celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ once a year. That should be something we should celebrate every single day of our lives because without the birth, there'd be no cross. And without the cross, we'd still all be dead in our trespasses and sins. Amen? But at the end of the day, how you celebrate December 25th or not celebrate December 25th is between you and the Holy Spirit. But I want to remind you of something that Paul wrote. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind, he who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, does it for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord and does not eat and gives thanks to God. Romans 14, 5 through 6. So the question becomes, or the question's been asked, should a Christian celebrate the Feast of Nativity, or as we know it more commonly, Christmas Day? And the answer is, if you do, just make sure you do it in honor of the Lord. Do it unto the Lord. But I would suggest that we celebrate not only December 25th, but we celebrate the real birth of Jesus Christ every year. And we're going to look at when Jesus was born. You guys want to know when Jesus was born? I thought you'd never ask. So, as I said, the truth is that Jesus was not born on December 25th. And all who knew Jesus did not know him by that name. His name's Yeshua. Now, no one knows the exact date that Yeshua was born. Some scholars have narrowed it down between 2 and 3 B.C. My guess is around 3 B.C. And so now you have an idea of the year that Yeshua was born. How about the month? Well, what if I told you that Yeshua was born in the month of September? Why September? Well, I'll explain that to you in a little more detail as we go along. And I know, I know this all flies right in the face of everything you grew up with, everything that you've been taught. We've grown up with the nativity scene. We've grown up with the star of Bethlehem shining through and the wise men, and, and, and by the way, who weren't there either, but we don't have enough time in this message to look at that. The shepherds, who were by there, by the way, so you didn't get that wrong. I love that scene. I truly do. I grew up with that the same as you do. I love the nativity scene. But as beautiful as it is, it's not right. It's just not right. Just like the painting of the Last Supper, it just didn't happen that way. But listen, the truth, the real truth of how he was born is far more beautiful than the tradition that we've come to believe. 
Because where he was born and how he was born paints a beautiful picture for us of who he is, the Savior of mankind. And what I'd like to do this morning, what I hope happens this morning, is that we're all transported from, believe me, I'd love to be right now, transported from 2020 back to the first century. I could use a break from this world right now. And as we do, I'm going to intertwine Bible verses from Luca, by the way, who is a Greek, not a Jew. Luca, or Luke as you know him, we're going to use his gospel. And hopefully Yeshua comes alive for you this morning. But this message comes with a warning. You will shatter every tradition that you have come to believe. And you will never look at Christmas the same way again. So I'm just warning you. First and foremost, as I said, let me remind you that Jesus is not a Westerner. Jesus is Jewish. Shaul, or Paul, wrote, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Yeshua was born to a Jewish mother named Miriam. In a Jewish town, born under the law of Moshe. Jesus, or Yeshua, is Jewish. And that's important because we're going to look at his life, his birth and his life, from a Jewish perspective and not a Western Gentile perspective. We didn't write the Bible. It wasn't written in the United States of America. It was written by holy men of God on the inspiration of God in the land of Jerusalem. Now, to date Messiah's birth, we have to look at the birth of Yochanan the Immerser. Anybody know who Yochanan the Immerser is? John the Baptist. Because that, do you know you can discover exactly when Jesus was born by reading the Gospel of Luke? It tells us. It gives us a date. Because it tells us when John was born. And that's an important clue for us. We know that Zacharias, Yochanan's father, was in the temple. He was a temple priest. He was serving in the temple. When he received the announcement, the angel came to him and told him that he would have a son. Now we know from scripture that Zechariah is a priest in the division of Abijah. We get that in Luca chapter 1 verse 5. Now we also know from scripture that there were certain courses or blocks of times that the priestly division served in the temple. There are 24 blocks of times, 24 separate groups of priests served in the temple at different times. And you can read about that in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 4 through 6. The division of Abijah that Zechariah served in was the eighth course. And those priests would have been ministering in the temple during the Feast of Shavuot, which in 3 BC, I went back to my calendar back then, was on Savan 5, and they would have continued serving their week out, they each served a week, to Savan 12, or for our calendar, May 19th to the 26th. Now calculating the normal weeks of a pregnancy and considering that the Hebrew calendar at that time was 11 days shorter than ours, Zechariah and Elisheva, Elizabeth, their son, Yochanan, the immerser, would have been born right around Passover. My guess is that he was born on Passover. During that time, Miriam, there was no Marys back then. It was Miriam. A young virgin girl in Nazareth gets a visit from an angel. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph in the house of David. The virgin's name was Miriam. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Miriam, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. I'm sorry, that's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. So Miriam becomes pregnant with the Son of God. And it is during that time 
when she first finds out that she decides to go visit her cousin Elizabeth, Elisheva. Now, Elisheva is six months pregnant when Miriam gets the message that she is also pregnant. And from that clue, we can determine the birth of Yochanan the Immerser to be around Passover that year. It also tells us that the Messiah was miraculously conceived at the time of Hanukkah, which in 3 BC was started in Kislev 25, or in our calendar it would have been December 2nd to the 9th. That's another significant point to remember, because Hanukkah is the festival of what? We just learned this last week. Festival of lights. Yeshua is the light of the world. And all who follow him will not walk in darkness, but walk in the light of life. So it's significant that he was conceived, the light of the world was conceived during the festival of lights. Now calculating the weeks of a normal pregnancy, the Messiah's birth would have occurred at the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, which in 3 BC was Tishuary 15th to the 21st, or in our calendar, September 24th to the 30th. Yeshua's birth occurred during the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And it's helpful that we know, not only that Jesus is Jewish, but that we operate on God's calendar, not ours. God has appointed certain days to mark significant milestones in his plan for mankind. Yeshua being born on the Feast of Tabernacles will have significant meaning for the world and for us as believers, and we're going to discover that as we go on a little further. We still have another hour or two left in the message. Now, we all know that Miriam and Yosef were required to go to Bethlehem to do what? To register for the census, right? Now, you also have to understand that no Roman administrator in his right mind would ever ask the people to travel in the winter months, the rainy season, because roads and streams would be impassable. So a time like September, October would have been more favorable to maximize participation in this census. And because there were so many others going to do the same thing, there wouldn't have been enough accommodations anywhere. There would have been no room in the inn. And although that's a beautiful story, right? Joseph and Mary are riding around on the donkey. First of all, there's no mention of a donkey here either. Sorry, I'm just tearing this all apart for you, aren't I? No donkeys. I saw plenty of camels in Israel, not a whole lot of donkeys. It's a beautiful story, but it's not the whole story. You know, there were three feasts every year that the Jewish males were, or Jewish people were expected to attend every single year. Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. And you'll find that in Exodus chapter 23, verse 14. During these feasts, the population of Jerusalem would swell from about 120,000 to over 2 million people. Bethlehem was less than six miles from Jerusalem, and so Yosef and Miriam would have stayed in Yosef's childhood home where he was born and raised in Bethlehem. And so you can imagine, with over two million people in the city, accommodations would have been tight there. There would have been other family members visiting also, and so they would have also been there for the Feast of Sukkot and for the census. So Joseph's house was packed packed. During Sukkot, every family member, by the way, was expected to live, at least for a few, at least part of the day, in a sukkah, which is singular. And we find that in Leviticus. And I'll read that for you. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 23 verses 42 through 43. So a sukkah, which, Lord willing, we will have one here during Jesus' birthday this coming year, was a temporary dwelling called a booth, usually made from palm or bamboo branches. So all over Jerusalem, all over Bethlehem, would have been these sukkah, plural, and people would live in them part of the day for seven days. And Miriam and Yosef would have been there not only to register for the census, but there to celebrate the Feast of Sukkot. Now we know that the Messiah, 
came to dwell with us, didn't he? And that's what that word means, the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles means to dwell with or to tabernacle among us. The Apostle John used a verb from the same Greek form that translates into the Hebrew word for booth, sukkah, when he wrote, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt or tabernacled with us. John chapter 1, verse 14. He came to earth, past tense, and tabernacled with us. He is also present tense, tabernacling with us by his Holy, the presence of his Holy Spirit in us. Amen? And he is in the future tense, going to return and tabernacle with us during the thousand-year reign. So on that day, on the Feast of Tabernacles, while the morning sacrifice were being performed, a special procession was organized for the water-drawing ceremony, a ceremony that was rich in symbolism. The procession of worshipers began at the temple and was led by a priest with a golden pitcher, and the temple procession reached the Pool of Siloam. The priest filled the golden pitcher with water, and they all went back to the temple, passing through the water gate, and as our Savior, the living water, the one who told the woman at the well that if she drank this water, she would never thirst again, was being born as the priest was pouring out that symbolic water in the temple. And it would have been right at that exact time, at the symbolic rite of the water pouring ceremony at that altar, some 33 years later, that our Savior, on his birthday, stood in the temple and the voice of Yeshua was heard clearly saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. John 7, 37. Still think this is all a coincidence? Now, we determine when Jesus was born. Let's look at the time he was born and the customs of the Jewish people, and you'll understand that it all comes together. Bethlehem, as I said, is just a small town. It's some six miles outside of Jerusalem, and the town would have swelled to capacity in September of 3,000, of uh, 3 BC. Luke chapter, Luca chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinus was governing Syria. So Joseph took his bride Miriam and headed for the city of Bethlehem, a journey to Miriam's hometown, a journey rather from Miriam's hometown of Nazareth to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. You had to go to your husband's hometown to register. But they would have not traveled alone. It wasn't just Mary and Joseph or Miriam and Joseph and a donkey. They would have traveled in a caravan for protection and they would have traveled with other pilgrims returning to their hometown for the same reason. And a caravan moved about as slow as 20 miles per day. So if it's 80 miles away from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, then it took them about four days to get there. As they entered the town, they would have gone straight to Joseph's parents' home. They wouldn't look for an inn. They would have gone straight to his home, his childhood home. So they all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Miriam, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Luke chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. So Yosef is from the house of David, which is in Bethlehem. Micah the prophet prophesied that Jesus the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Micah 5, chapter, verse 2. So King David grew up in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. He was the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, who was a kinsman redeemer. David was a shepherd in the very fields where the shepherds were when the birth of Jesus was announced. Again, no coincidence in how or when Jesus was born. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is our great shepherd. He is our bread of life. He is our king of kings. It was here in Bethlehem that Yosef lived with his family, and his mom and his dad would have still lived here. His aunts, his uncles, Uncle Mordecai, Aunt Sarah, they would have all been there for the Feast of Sukkot or for the census. And if not living there at the time, they would have certainly been visiting. 
And so it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Luca chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. So when Yosef and Miriam arrived in Bethlehem, they would make their way to the family home, and they would find it filled with family. As the time approached for Miriam to give birth, they would have looked for a place with a little bit of privacy. But they would have found all the rooms in that house occupied by elder family members. So they went to the inn, in your translation, right? In the Greek, that word inn is kataluma, and it means a guest room or an upper room. They would have gone to the guest room and found it filled with visiting senior family members. And so they would have gone back downstairs and try to find a place where Miriam could deliver her baby in private. The animals the family owned were their prized possessions at the time because they provided not only food for the family, but they also helped the family earn a living. So the animals would have been kept in a pen on the lower level of their home, of their dwelling place, separated by a feeding trough. The feeding trough or mangers or a manger that you've come to know is what the animals ate out of. It would have been made of stone, not wood, as wood was very, very difficult to find back then. But if you've ever been to Israel, stones are everywhere. So this would have been made of stone. As you can imagine, the room where the animals was kept wasn't occupied by any humans. So this is where Jesus would have been born. So when Yosef and Miriam found the guest rooms to be filled, they went to the room where the animals were kept. And that's where Miriam gave birth to the Savior of the world, in a place where you had to watch where you stepped. It's even possible that Yosef's mother, Miriam's mother-in-law, and his aunts would have acted as a midwife that day. And after Miriam gave birth, she wrapped that baby in swaddling cloths. Just like we'd swaddle an infant today in a receiving blanket to keep them warm and secure. But here's a really cool picture. They didn't normally wrap babies in swaddling cloths. They wrapped lambs in swaddling cloths. The shepherds were tending the lambs for the sacrifices during this feast in the fields. The lamb's legs would have been wrapped to keep them from being injured so they could be spotless lambs. And this is a picture of our sinless, spotless lamb of God being wrapped in those swaddling clothes. And she lays him in the stone feeding trough, surrounded by his loving family. Grandma kissing his little face, his cousins filled with joy at the birth of another family member. But they wouldn't be the only ones filled with joy at the birth of Yeshua, and they would not be the only ones present there. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people." For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Miriam and Yosef and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Miriam kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Luca chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And the average temperature in Israel during the month of September is in the 80s during the day and drops down to a very cold and balmy 70 degrees at night. Perfect conditions for shepherds to be in the field tending to the sheep and the lambs. By the way, 
There are shepherds in the fields in December also. Sheep are not migratory animals. They don't go to Egypt for the winter. Sheep have wool coats. And since sheep get sheared, so do the shepherds. So they're more than capable of staying out even on the coldest of nights. But we know that they were in the field that night tending the sheep, the very sheep that would be used for the sacrifices during the Feast of Sukkot. And we read that in Numbers chapter 29. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. Numbers 29, 13. So the shepherds would have been tending the lambs as the spotless, sinless lamb of God was born. Still think it's a coincidence? Yochanan the Immerser, when he saw Jesus, said to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The shepherds were the first to receive the good news. They were the first to hear the gospel message that the Savior of man had been born. And there's a message in that for us. Shepherds were the most humble and lowly of all the people. And by God choosing them to be the first ones to hear the gospel message, he's saying to all of us that salvation is for all. From the lowliest among you to the greatest among you. For all who believe, he is given the right to be called children of God. From Yochanan the Immerser, born on Passover, to the conception of Yeshua on Hanukkah, to his birth during Sukkot, God has been sending us a message. That he appoints days and times. He decides how all this falls into place. And part of his plan when Yeshua was born, is the reason he was born. Yeshua was born to die. From the time he was born, the shadow of the cross lay across his path. He came to die so that you and I could live. His birth in that manger that night, was there was a shadow of the cross cast over that manger. So let's remember that every day, he came so that we could have life. How Let's remember every day how the birth of one man changed our lives forever. And so I ask you as I do each message, and this message is no different, are you ready, knowing how much God loves us, that he would orchestrate this? And that could only be God. Only the hand of God could have this happen the way it did. For every one of these events to fall on a very specific time frame and have such deep, rich meaning for all of us, are you ready to hear the gospel message? Are you ready to not only hear it, but to respond to it? Do you want to know this Yeshua who came into this earth to die for your sins? It's as simple as ABC. Admit that you're a sinner. And the Bible tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. So you can't say that I'm not a sinner. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. So it begins with admitting that you're a sinner, knowing that there are none righteous, not one believing that we're not good enough, that we need a Savior. And that brings us to be. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Paul wrote, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, verses 10 to 11. So admit that you're a sinner. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. Submit your life to him. Commit your will to him. And then call upon the name of Jesus. And that's our C in the ABCs. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this Christmas season, any season, please don't ever feel that you've done something or many things that make it impossible for you to be saved. The only thing any of us could do that makes it impossible for us to be saved is to die in our sins without knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So if you want to be reconciled to him today, I encourage you to just fall on your knees. Call upon the name of the Lord. God has orchestrated all of this, right down to this message today, which is, you have to agree, an unusual Christmas message, but it's the truth. We may celebrate this traditionally as December 25th, but it's not the day he was born. If you want to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, celebrate it every single day in your hearts. Because his birth meant that we have eternal life. His birth led him to the cross, and it's the cross 
that where our sins were forgiven. And by those sins being forgiven, we have eternal life when we come to him as Lord and Savior. Amen? So we're going to have a time this morning of communion, and then a little bit more time of worship, and then I hope you can join us for some um, refreshments afterwards. But while I'm going to ask now, we're going to do communion a little differently this morning. We'd like to I'd like to change things up so that you guys never get too used to this. I'm going to ask uh, Pete and Paul. Did we lose Pete? Um, come up. They're going, to, they're going to come. We're going to bring communion to you this morning. So as they're doing that, I'm just going to ask that you guys just bow your heads. And if you're with us this morning on Facebook or you're with us live, if you can grab a communion element, something you might have in the house, and participate with us. And uh, Petra, we, got, we need Petra up too. They're going to bring the communion elements to you guys this morning. So you want to start? Bread first? Or you want to do both? Okay. The Marine wants to do it all. Bow your heads. Leave anything that you may have on your heart this morning. Just leave it behind so that we can partake together. Now, since we're in first century Israel, what we're doing right now this morning, obviously Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him. We do it in remembrance of his sacrifice on the cross. But it's also a picture for us of, of what they did in that Middle Eastern culture as they all sat around the table together. They would have passed a loaf of bread to each other. And they would, as it came around the table, they would have broken off a piece for themselves Everyone have their communion elements this morning? And so as they went around the table, they'd break off a piece, and it would just go all the way around until the bread was completely broken apart, and everyone had a piece of bread. And the symbolism in that was that this loaf of bread, this one loaf of bread that is in you is also in me. We've all partaken from the same loaf of bread. It was a symbol of a common meal or a co Communion, And so they would also pass a cup around this table in the very same manner, just as Jesus did with his disciples. And so as we partake in communion together this morning, that same bread of, the life, bread of life that you have inside of you, I have inside of me. That same cup that we drink from this morning, that same blood of Christ that washed me clean of my sins, washed you clean of your sins. The same Jesus that is in me is in you, and that's the symbolism of communion. Now, on the night he was betrayed, now remember, Jesus came, he was born to die. And that began with a betrayal, betrayal of one who followed him closely over the years. Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He came to earth so that knowing that his path, his journey, would lead to the cross. And if it wasn't for that journey, if it wasn't for the cross, none of us would be here today even doing this, even remembering this. We'd be so hopeless, so lost. And it's a reminder for us that no matter how dark the days are, no matter how hopeless it seems, no matter how lost we feel sometimes, no matter even the loss that we sustain and suffer or the, or the pain that we have in our hearts to seeing others lose. 
suffering loss, the hope that we have that surpasses all of that is in Christ Jesus. And that hope that we have is because he came to earth that day, because his journey led him to the cross, because he so willingly, lovingly gave himself on the cross for us. So as we partake this morning, let's remember his sacrifice. Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which was shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so our Lord promises us, right here, that we'll all be together with him in heaven. We'll all be sitting there doing exactly what we're doing now, only we'll be doing this with Christians from around the world. Different, well, we'll all speak the same dialect, but just brothers and sisters of every shape and size and walk and just amazing how we're all going to get together. And that's what this communion means. We're all, not just this little body here at Calvary Chapel, Lehigh Valley, but all around the world, our brothers and sisters are all part of this communion of Jesus Christ. We're all united in him. We all get together again in heaven with Jesus celebrating this. So we may leave this life at different times from one another, but we're all going to the same place. We're all going to meet together. So our journey isn't finished here. For some of our brothers and sisters, it is. Some have gone before us. And for us, we still have a journey left. But that journey all leads to the same place. We're all going to do this again one day in his presence. Amen? That's our hope. That's our blessed hope. I hope every day. I hope before we finish this worship today that we're raptured out of here. But when that happens, we're going to, whether it's by rapture or he just takes us home, we're going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's partake. Please stand as we pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And Lord, we thank you for the incredible message of, of Christmas and what it truly means, Lord. And, and no matter how we, hard we try to make this holiday a beautiful holiday, it cannot ever compare to the beauty of the truth of how this came about of the day you truly were born and, this, and the significance that has in all of our lives. So, Lord, as we worship you in spirit and in truth, go before us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys.